Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Collectors Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Henry Dixon, Fund Manager of the Man GLG Income Fund, which is one of Interactive Investor's Super 60 choices. In the interview, I ask Henry whether in 2021 we will see a return to normality for dividend payments or whether there will be a permanent reset. In other words, a lower amount of dividends being paid for the next couple of years. Following on from that interview, at the end of the podcast, Dmitry Lipsky will be running through one of Interactive Investors' rated fund choices. Firstly, as ever, joining me to talk through a couple of news items is Tom Bailey, the ETFs editor at Interactive Investor. We're going to start off with a quick run through of the funds and investment trusts that Interactive Investor customers turn their attentions to in January. Each month, we reveal the top 10 most popular funds and investment trusts based on the number of buys. One trend is that investors are continuing to back funds that solely invest in China. Funds and trusts uh, backing that region were among the top performers of 2020. Its market has had a positive start to the year. In early January, China's CSI 300 index reached its highest point since 2008. Helping to fuel the rally has been a surge of new investor accounts being opened in the country, with retail investors being drawn to the market's strong performance since the end of March last year. In addition, Eye-catching share price rises from Chinese technology companies, such as Tencent, have piqued investor interest. In our top 10 most popular funds, Bailey Gifford China climbed three places to fourth place, while in our top 10 most popular investment trusts, JP Morgan China Growth and Income and Fidelity China Special Situations both climbed up the leaderboard to take third and fourth place in January. As ever, at the top of the trust table is Scottish Mortgage, while for funds, Fundsmith Equity regained its usual place at the top, having been knocked off its perch last month by Bailey Gifford American. Write-ups of both top tens are on the Interactive Investor website, ii.co.uk, so do check them out. But it's not just China that investors are backing. More broadly, investors are expecting emerging markets to have a good year of performance in 2021. Tom, could you explain why fund managers are increasingly turning their attentions to the East in pursuit of potentially higher returns? Yeah, sure. So there's a few things going on here, I think. First of all, fund managers are looking to profit from the kind of global recovery from hopefully post-COVID 2021. So obviously they're looking towards cyclicals and there is lots of cyclicals in emerging markets um, with the prominence of commodity and energy exporters in particularly Latin America and Russia. Um, but there's also uh, kind of the industrial sectors in, in East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea. And then also yeah, consumer demand is obviously uh, stimulates demand for manufacturers from East Asia. So there's lots of kind of reason to think that if you want to benefit from a pick up in economic growth, Asia is the place to go. And then there's also other other factors. So the dollar is going to weaken this year as a kind of general consensus or is already already weakening. So when the dollar is stronger, um, emerging markets suffer. Uh, now the dollar is expected to weaken because of the US spending more, uh, having a looser monetary policy. 
the dollar is going to weaken uh, in theory, and that should be good for emerging markets, particularly those countries in which lots of their, their debt is denominated in the dollar, which uh, obviously acts as a, when the dollar is stronger, acts as a, as a drag on economic growth there. Uh, and, then, and then finally, there's just the reality that Asia has done so much better during the pandemic. And so you, know, you can see that as kind of heralding the continued, or at least the continuation of the economic shift um, towards Asia. And so it's going to be the most dynamic part of the world economy this decade, this century. And of course, the attractions of emerging markets are well documented. These fast growing economies are armed with favourable demographics in the shape of young, increasingly upwardly mobile populations. This means plenty of taxpayers and spenders, which in theory should hopefully translate into positive uh, stock market returns for investors. Tom, you invest in emerging markets and despite favouring the passive investment approach, you have actively managed exposure to the region through an investment trust. Could you explain your thought process behind coming towards that decision? Yeah, sure. So as you say, most of my holdings are, are ETFs and passive because I generally do think uh, mostly it's it's best to get passive exposures than most most markets, but not not everywhere it is is possible to get decent passive exposure. So I think your starting point should always be, you know, you want exposure to this asset class or region or whatever, and then ask how, how best to get it. And the answer usually is, in my view, to go with an ETF or an index fund, but it's not always possible. So one of the trusts I own is uh, Mitre, UK Microcap, uh, managed by Gervais Williams. The, the idea here is that uh, you know very small, tiny companies can uh, better navigate uh, tough economic times, which kind of at the depth of okay, lockdown last year, um, before any kind of when it was you know no deal was a real prospect. There was a strong case we made for trying to trying to buy those companies in the UK for UK exposure. So you know I, I brought Mitre Microcap and, and and it's done relatively well. Obviously. If there was a, a index fund, perhaps you, I would go with that. But you know, you can't necessarily get an ETF which tracks such such tiny companies. Active still has definitely a role when it comes to micro caps. And then um, it's kind of a similar story with another one I own, which is um, the Mobius Investment Trust, which invests in in mostly small companies in emerging and frontier markets. There is a, a MSCI's uh, Emerging Market Small Cap Index, which is tracked by ETFs, but this kind of it's slightly different in terms of it's often smaller companies, it's frontier market companies, so you know even even less developed economies than emerging markets, and then also the, the management sees kind of um, potential alpha being produced by engaging with companies um, to increase the governance standards in these parts of the world, which then has potential upside. You don't really get that with ETFs. I think you know, people can talk about kind of stewardship in say European or US companies, but where you probably there's a real difference to be made by by fund managers is is in is in emerging and, and frontier um, small cap companies, and then another trust I own is uh, Bailey Gifford US Growth, which is obviously you know a lot of it is in Amazon and Tesla and it's kind of obviously it's done fantastic on that aspect. But what really attracted me to this trust is that up to half of the portfolio of the trust can be in private companies, which is the definite theme that I think investors should really be paying attention to is kind of the decline of the public company. So companies are staying. Um, private for longer, this has real implications for for your ability to kind of access growth companies because companies are staying private for longer because they're getting funded by venture capital or you know they you know they they're software companies so they don't need to go to the stock market to raise big amounts of capital to you know invest in factories to expand. So really, um, listing on a stock exchange becomes a kind of a liquidity event for early stage investors later on. So really, if you want the growth of some of these more 
you know, fast-growing tech companies, you want access to them before they're on public markets. But obviously, as retail investors, it's not really easy to do. And nor is it possible to get an ETF or an index fund that can do that. But some of these investment trusts offer exposure to these companies now. And obviously, Bailey Gifford in general has a pretty good track record of, of investing in, in private companies before they go public. So it seemed like a, like a decent trust to own. Thank you for running through your thought process there, Tom. found that very interesting. Tom wrote about his views on active versus passive in his latest column. So do check that out at ii.co.uk. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Henry Dixon, Fund Manager of the MAN GLG Income Fund. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Good morning and thank you for having me. Firstly, Henry, could you run through how you invest and what the fund is seeking to achieve? Absolutely. So we are definitely seeking capital appreciation and an income ahead of that of the market. We do that via a three-pronged approach. Firstly, we use our value approach that we use in the undervalued assets fund. Secondly, we look to isolate areas of dividend surprise within the UK stock market. Uh, Here we're looking for healthy free cash flow yields and better balance sheets in order to drive a dividend surprise. And finally, selectively, we will invest in corporate bonds. Our checklist here is a listed equity. We must think that there is equity value. and We must be able to deliver both capital upside in a bond and also an attractive running yield. I'd like to move on to ask you how challenging it has been to be an income investor over the past year. And in addition to that, how did you respond to scores of UK companies cutting, cancelling and suspending their dividend payments in response to COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. It was. I mean, the numbers on are pretty brutal for the UK market in 2020. We saw a 38% dividend cut. And obviously, a whole host of dividend cuts that, you know, clearly 12 months ago would have very much caught us by surprise. Our response during that crisis was definitely to flex our cash flow approach to think about not just survivability, but also our determination that where there were dividends that either cancelled or passed, we wanted to set ourselves the threshold of companies being able to return to the dividend list on a 12-month view. As we sit here 12 months on from really the crisis, I think there is some credit to be taken from the fact that the dividend cut delivered by the fund was less than that of the wider market. Uh, Dividend payments actually in 2020 were only down 11%, but there's some timing issues around our year end. But I think even if you look at the worst moment of dividends from the fund relative to the crisis, I still think we'll deliver an outcome better than that of the wider market. And so, as I say, I think sitting here today, the trailing yield on the fund is definitely over 5%. I think that's attractive in absolute terms. It's clearly attractive relative to the market, which yields nearer 3%. And we are hopeful for growth in the year ahead. You you mentioned there that you are hopeful for growth in the year ahead. I mean, in terms of the overall UK dividend market, what's your outlook? And do you think we will see a return to normality or will it be a permanent reset of dividends? Well, I think if you do have a dividend cut and the magnitude of approaching 40%, I think it will take some time clearly to get back to those 2019 levels of dividend payments. As I look at the bottom-up consensus forecast for 2021, uh, we're looking at approximately a 17% dividend growth year on year. And you'll clearly have to keep that out for two to three years to get back to where you were in 2019. So, Was it a one-off step change? Absolutely. Will it take 
two to three years for us to get back to where we were. I absolutely do agree with that as well. Clearly, as active managers, I think we'll try to tilt ourselves to the areas that I think can have the best sort of dividend surprise going forward. As I sit here today, I'd probably call out two sectors. Firstly, I'd say mining sectors with one of the very best balance sheets in the market is defined by modest net debt and very, very strong free cash flow trends at this point in time. I think can definitely deliver us a very healthy dividend uh, growth in 2021. And then also uh, the sector in the market that's the only sector that is net cash, uh, I would look at domestically and I'd call out the house builders. And I think we are very definitely very confident of a return to meaningful dividends after clearly, you know, a lot of dividends being passed in 2020. So I think those would be a couple of areas where I think we can get very good growth year on year and hopefully, therefore, a little bit like we did in 2020, try to deliver a better dividend outcome in 2021 than the wider market. I mean, you've just mentioned there two sectors, um, miners and house builders. Are there any other sectors that you're focusing your attention on that you think are potentially good value opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd talk to probably, yeah, let's talk to two or three sectors and then a theme in general. But I think as I look this year, I think we're really trying to think what normal might look like. And I'm trying to think about where margin expectations are for 21 versus where they were pre-crisis. So compare that to 2019. And I would call out a couple of sectors that I think can actually get back to sort of 2019 profitability reasonably quickly. So, for example, I look at the forecast for the manufacturing sector and the house building sector where analysts think that margins will be down in the order of magnitude of 15 to 20 percent relative to pre-COVID levels. And I think to some extent, you know, we, we... we disagree with that. So where I think we can find very modest valuations in those sectors, and we're talking PEs of definitely less than 10 times on current numbers, and we also see an elevated probability of numbers creeping up, then I think that probably does start to tick a lot of boxes of not just value, but also critically earnings momentum as well, because I think that's a critical aspect in order for value shares, if you like, to be re-rated. Another thought for us as well is I think it's been well documented that the UK has clearly not been a port of call for international investors over the last four and a half years. I think it's you know understandable given the political premium that has probably been baked into this geography over the last four and a half years. But maybe with some sort of resolution on Brexit, I think we can look forward perhaps to a year where I think fundamentals will dominate investment a bit more. And therefore, with that in mind, I think there's also very credibly you should have a foot in the camp that is some of our overseas companies that I think are very well run, but also look now unusually cheap versus international peers. So I definitely think that international arbitrage is an area that we're concentrating on quite strongly. And this is some of the larger companies, be it, as I say, we've mentioned mining. I'd also say pharmaceuticals and also food producers as well. As I say, we can look at long-run valuation, and it just does look to us as though the UK-listed equivalent is trading unusually cheap versus international peers. And you've just mentioned, obviously, about um, some of those larger companies, and that seems to be an area of focus for you at the moment, as just over half of the assets are in FTSE 100 firms, um, and then just over a third are in FTSE 250 names. Are you finding less attractive opportunities in the smaller company space? No, no, I wouldn't say so. I do think that the value credentials of the market are spread across the market cap spectrum. 
Um, I do think uh, that if there are large and mid-sized companies that are great value, then potentially why do we need to go down into that smaller cap end of the spectrum? Because there you definitely take on, I think, a little bit more risk in the form of liquidity and maybe customer concentration. So I think at this point in time, we definitely don't want to be sort of talking against small caps per se, but I just think I would highlight that the value opportunity feels very well spread across the entire market cap spectrum. And where we can probably try to isolate, what we try to do is isolate the best combination, I think, of value and also liquidity. And so that really, I think, talks to what is quite a good spread of, you know, exposures across the entire spectrum of market caps. And finally, the fund pays a monthly dividend, which sets it apart from many competitors. Do you need to bear this in mind at all in terms of the fund structure to ensure that there's a certain amount of income being generated each month? Yeah, absolutely, Carl. The fund does pay a monthly dividend. Uh, That's something we put in place about four years ago, and I think it's definitely been welcomed by investors. With regards to having to sort of the fund structure and having to hold back dividend, I think we're very fortunate that the year end for the fund is February. And so whilst we do enter March with no income, if you like, within the fund, we're very fortunate that March, April, May months tend to be very rich collection months. And so, therefore, we are able to smooth the dividend payment for the rest of the year. And that's what gives us a lot of confidence to, at the start of the year, give our forecast for the monthly dividend that we think is payable for at least the next 12 months. Henry, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much indeed, Carl. I wish you all the very best. final part of the podcast, we are turning our attention to one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 Fund Choices. For this episode, it is the turn of Dmitry Lipsky, Head of Fund Research at Interactive Investor. So, Dmitry, which funds have you chosen? Hi, Kyle. For today's uh, podcast, I've chosen Leg Mason Clear Bridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund. So, it's been recently added to our Super 60 list as an alternative core recommendation. The fund is targeted at investors with the two primary objectives, reliable income generated from dividends of underlying holdings and capital growth above the level of inflation over five years. The managers seek to outperform so-called the OECD G7 inflation index by 5.5% over five years. And for fund invest in a diverse basket of global listed infrastructure assets in various uh, sectors, such as water utilities, gas, electricity. And the portfolio also spread across different geographical areas with the US, Australia and Canada, the top three country weightings. And who are the full managers? So the fund is run by highly, highly regarded and well-resourced infrastructure team at ClearBridge Investments. It's co-managed by Nick Hangley, Shane Hurst, Charles Hamith and Daniel Chu, who are all based in Australia, but uh, regularly travel to their additional offices in the UK, Europe and North America. They also have the support of the team of analysts responsible for idea generation and ongoing monitoring of the existing holdings. And how do the fund managers invest? So the investment process takes into account both top-down macroeconomic factors and bottom-up fundamental stock-specific research. The team's philosophy is that market tends to misprice infrastructure assets over the short term, 
and there is a great opportunity set in taking a long-term valuation-focused approach. The managers run concentrated portfolio of around 40 holdings. Examples of holdings include the Spanish Electricity Grid Corporation, Red Electrica, and Brookfield Renewable, which operates one of the world's largest renewable power platforms. And what would you say makes the fund special? So the, the team uh, behind the fund is very experienced. And in addition to generating attractive yield, currently over 6%, the fund have consistently outperformed the market and other funds in the sector over both short and longer term with lower risks. And finally, Dimitri, which sort of investors do you think this fund will particularly suit? The fund, uh, like Mason Clearbridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund, is, is a compelling offering run by Clearbridge Investments team of experts. It should appeal for someone who is looking for active co-exposure to infrastructure assets within a balanced portfolio, uh, which is primarily designed to deliver a relatively high and sustainable level of income. Thanks, Dimitri, for running through that fund. That's all for this episode. Thank you to all my guests, including Henry Dixon, Fund Manager of the MAN GLG Income Fund. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find loads more investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.